Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were scattered. I am writing to you in Pontus that you may stand firm in the faith, in Cappadocia that you may have joy despite your suffering, in Asia that you may prepare your minds for action, in Bintinia that you may arm yourselves with wisdom to wage war against the enemy. Go forth with the courage of Christ and the grace of the God who owns all things. You, exiles of the King. Good morning. I love how that intro video brings us into this uh, this series, You Exiles of the King. We are exiles in a land that we don't belong, of the king, and we know where we do belong. And uh, how, how Peter opens this, this book of the Bible, this letter he writes, he's writing to a church that had been scattered. And uh, he's writing from Rome, and Peter is kind of a... He's kind of a redneck fisherman guy. He, he, was, he never left more than just a few miles from home. That's what he knew. But at the point he's writing this letter, he now finds himself in Rome where it's like a metropolis. It is the largest city that, in the known world. And it's got, it's, 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 they speak a language he doesn't speak. You can imagine how displaced he feels. And he's writing to a group of people that are followers of Christ that have also been displaced. There's been, there's been a scattering of the church because of persecution. And they find themselves... Across this is an area in modern day Turkey that the church is now at. So they have been under persecution from the Jews and persecutions from, persecution from the Romans, and now they're displaced in Turkey. And so Peter is writing this letter to a people that are no longer meeting as they used to and, and seeing each other as they used to. And uh, I find that it is so appropriate uh, in what we're going through right now with this contagion the church um, is going through with being scattered across um, our cities and different, different locations and not being able to come together as we normally would. This disruption has really been a scattering. And I think it's so appropriate what Pastor Todd has selected as a series, a, a letter to a scattered church. And scattering can do one of two things. Scattering can, um, can, uh, well, when I was in like the equivalent of Boy Scouts back in, back in middle school or grade school, um, we would go camping and they had, um, a, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted. Hello. Um, (laughs) so, uh, when I was like back in grade school, they would have, uh, like a camping trip they take us on in the fire when it was time to put it put it out they would say okay time to get um some water and we're going to put water on the campfire and then we're going to go get um a stick and we're going to stir it and then we're going to sprinkle more water and we're going to stir it and the stirring was to separate the embers and at the scattering of those embers they would eventually kind of burn themselves out and go out because they're no longer connected to the greater whole and by itself it can't burn and so that scattering would essentially eventually put the fire out much more rapidly and i think that was satan's plan with the church was to 
scatter it so that it would burn out and be completely gone. But there's another kind of scattering that I don't think he intended, and that's when you take coals or recklessly take pieces of fire sparks and throw it into the dry brush, and it explodes into a bunch of fires everywhere, and and suddenly that fire spreads much more rapidly. And I think uh, Satan didn't intend this, but God used it to spread the church in an incredibly rapid fashion. And you see, um, at the time period, what happened was a God-ordained thing. I'm not saying that God necessarily caused the persecution the church went through, but God used that time very specifically. Um, the, the, the time period that was happening, the Roman Empire was at its strength, and there was a time, it was a time called the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. There was, the, the Roman world had infrastructure like it had never been seen before. There are roads that go through it that connect the, the, the empire that still exist today. You can still walk on those Roman roads um, to this day. And so these roads made thoroughfares and arterials for the gospel to literally be spread across the known world. And, and then on top of it, uh, Israel sat at the hinge of three continents. You've got Europe that comes in and connects to, to, to Israel, as well as Asia connecting to Israel right around the area of Turkey. You've got the Eurasia area there. And Africa up through um, through Egypt into, into uh, Israel. And so from there, the gospel was able to go across continents. We see the story of Philip when he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch and brought him to, the, to, to knowledge of Christ. And the eunuch went back to Africa, and there's still tradition today that says in Africa, uh, in, in Ethiopia, the, the church has been established there by that eunuch that came from, from uh, his, his uh, encounter with Philip. And then, um, then you also have the... Uh, the apostles John and Thomas that went to Asia. And so all of this infrastructure was used by God to bring the gospel across the world. It was an incredible opportunity at the dispersion of the church. It wasn't just a random activity. Now, when we look at our situation today, the scattering of the church in 2020 and 2021, it has brought about serious challenges. It's brought about profound challenges as well, though, as profound opportunities. What a time in our world that we have, that we've never seen before. We see, we're able to literally watch our church service now on Sunday morning in the grocery store if you wanted, if you were live. It's, it's just like technology can reach out around the world. This was something that wasn't available except to televangelists at the time. Now any, any church can basically be in your living room or right on your cell phone. It's an incredible opportunity and I think God has used this, what, would, what the enemy would mean for evil, for good. And there's great opportunity in it. Um, Now, however, um, I need to say this. It's incredibly neat how the church can end up right on your cell phone. It can end up right in, in your home. But the church, the body of Christ, is not a Netflix subscription. And in many ways, I believe the church has kind of started to view it as such. The convenience of just, I'll just have church by myself in my, in my home. And we need to be careful of that. This resource that God has provided, what are we using it for? What's that spreading doing? Is that, is that dispersion of those coals going to coals that are burning themselves out, r- kind of riding this out on their own, or are these coals going out igniting more fires? And so as we see these embers scattered, I have to give an honest appraisal. What's the church look like no longer in the building all the time? There are some uh, spiritual leaders and and people that I really look up to that say, this is just how the church is going to look from now on. Church is going to be online. And I, I, I push against that. I think the church needs to be together face to face. They need to see each other. They need to edify one another. But then 
in this dispersion that we're in now, in whatever context it may be, how then are we supposed to live? And that's what Peter writes this letter about. He's writing to people, these are his friends, these are people he knows, that no longer live even near their homes. They have been pushed out. And he's concerned, I'm sure, because he's going, they are no longer sitting in Jerusalem under the leadership of the apostles. They no longer have the church that's their, that's their anchor. What are they going to do? What do I need to write to them to encourage them in so that they aren't lost, so that they don't burn themselves out? How then do we live? And this is what we're going to talk about. So open your Bibles with me to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. It says this. So, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. He says, with this in mind, prepare your minds for action. Now, the Greek phrase that Peter uses here, prepare your mind for action, is actually translated as, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins. Now that sounds like an odd cooking recipe to me, like some sort of pork line or something. I don't know. But, uh, but this was a phrase that was commonly used back in the day. You see, back in the day, Levi's uh, wasn't in uh, production as it is today. They, didn't, they couldn't go out and buy a nice pair of jeans. They actually wore robes. And I went out to the storage building, and I found... I had to dig for a while through the uh, Christmas pageant costumes to find one in my size. But... Uh, I found a, 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 a nice robe like they used to lit, wear back in the day. So bear with me while I put my robe on here. They had one still an extra large. There we go. So they wore these nice robes. Isn't that nice? And it made sense in the day. They lived in an arid climate. It's kind of breathy. It flows. It's very practical. It, there's not too many seams, so I'm sure they're easy to make. They're not too complex. But the problem is, is when you need to do something like run... Or when you need to do something like do a lot of bending over if you're working in the field, they're restrictive. They're difficult to work in. Or especially if you need to fight. If you're about to go into battle, you don't want to be wearing a dress and having a hard time moving around. So what they would do is what they would call girding up the loins. And what that would involve is they'd gather up their robe and they would pass it through their legs like a diaper... And they would tuck it into their belt. And now there is freedom of motion, easy to move, quickly. You have, you have all these advantages. The issue being the fashion statement isn't as strong. <laughs> Looks like you're wearing an adult incontinence item of some sort. So, so people wouldn't just go around with their loins girded. They would only do this when they knew that action was imminent. When it was about time to go and do something. When it was about time to run. When it was about time to fight. When it was about time to work. So, so the girding was something that was done. Pardon me while I remember. I'm not going to pre- I don't want to distract you with my robe the whole time here. So the girding was something that was done when that action was imminent. You only did it when it was time to go. So when Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying, get prepared, it's time to go now. Don't just be in idle. Don't just be in, we'll hold on, we'll see what happens. But be ready to go with your mind. Have it engaged and prepared. And this is what Peter is talking about. So, so there's actually other times in the Bible where this girding up the loins is mentioned. 
To give you more examples, in the book of Exodus chapter 12, God directs the Israelites. They're about to flee out of Egypt. And it needs to be quick because Pharaoh kind of has a tendency to change his mind. He was a little bit bipolar. And so they were, they were, he was like, you guys got to be ready to go. And so, and so God tells them, you need to gird. Here he says, and thus you shall eat. He's talking about the meal that they, they were to make. And then with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So they're going to have this Passover meal, but they're going to do it literally ready to bolt. There's another point in the Bible that it uses this phrase, and it's in Proverbs chapter 31. We, most of us know Proverbs 31 is the chapter that talks about a wife of noble character, right? And... Often in the newer translations, this is something that's missed. And, and, and so we need to realize that, that this girding up wasn't just something that men would do to prepare for battle or to run, but this was something women would do as well. In Pro- Proverbs thirty-one seventeen, it says that a wife of noble character girds her loins with strength. Now, in modern translations, it often says she dresses herself with strength. But I actually feel that this is an understatement. Because when we say that she just dresses herself with strength, we're not just saying that she's just a strong woman or she puts on strength, but rather she's a woman of action. That there's going to be motion and momentum and movement to this. It's not just that she's a strong woman, but she's an action woman. She's ready to go, ready to do something. And so this action of girding the loins that the Bible talks about is intentional, and it's with an expectation of imminent motion. We're not just passing time. This, uh, this preparation is like when, uh, when we were expecting our, our two sons to be born. When that due date was getting close, and I saw it getting closer and closer, I was prepared. I had car seats bolted down in the car, just like the YouTube videos and all the pamphlets said. I mean, I went through it, made sure everything was exactly right. I, we had the diaper bag ready to go in the, back, in the back of the car, just in case she were to be like, it's time, I was ready to go. I went to the Lamaze classes with her, and I practiced all the... <laughs> That I knew how to breathe perfectly, and uh, I was excited to be on her team. And then, and l- let me just let me just give you this advice, guys. When the time comes for your wife to have the baby, don't feel like you need to coach her on the proper breathing if she's doing it wrong. Let her do it how she wants to do it. When it's time, she's got it. Just don't be like, "Honey, you're doing it wrong." She will rip your face off. Okay, so. <laughs> But I was prepared. I was ready for any moment. I was ready to step in and, and, and you know, we are going to go. And so this, this preparation, this knowing that at any moment we need to be ready to go. You don't have your robe girded just around town, just casually. It's ready to go. So there's three things that we need to be that level prepared for that Peter talks about. Three things I want us to touch, about, touch on right now. The first thing is this. Peter says that we need to stand confident in our hope. Stand confident in hope. So if we continue reading down in verse 13, here's what Peter says. He says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. See, our minds are to be prepared and ready for, for action. To do what? What does it say? To exercise self-control. So that's, that's weird to me. We need to be ready to react, to not react. Is that weird? Be prepared to be tempered. <laughs> He's saying Christians shouldn't be chicken littles running around like our head, like the, 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 the sky is falling, like our heads are cut off. Ah, things are, it's really bad. But rather we're to have temperance, we're to be self-controlled. 
Our minds are to be prepared for when all hope seems to be lost, when everyone else feels lost, to be placed in the hope of our salvation when Jesus is revealed. And he says this, we're to put all of our hope in this generous, in, in this generous, gracious salvation that's going to come. All of our eggs need to go in one basket. Um, there's been a lot going on with Wall Street in this last week. I don't know if you've been paying attention. Apparently GameStop is worth a whole lot of money now. And in the, in the stock market and in, in investments, they always talk about the importance of diversifying, right? Diversify your portfolio. And I think a lot of people do that with their hopes. They say, if I pin my hope on several things, I can't be too disappointed if one falls through because i got some other stuff. And Peter says, you're going to need to take all of your hope, every last bit of it, and take it and put it all on black and let it ride. Take all the chips, push them in. Trust God in everything. Don't take a little bit and say, well, I might put some hope in in how good a person I can be. Maybe that is my eternal hope. If I'm a good enough person and I make good relationships and there's the right uh, people around me, that's what's going to be my support system. Or maybe you say, uh, maybe there's some other faith systems I need to work on, some philosophies I need to incorporate, and that'll be my, my system, my support system. Peter's saying, no, take all the hope that you have and put it in Jesus into this salvation that is going to come to you. We need to put it all in, all in. See, we have, as Christians, a privilege of having a profound optimism with our hope. We have the privilege of having a carefree mind. Now, I'm not saying that we have a mind that's devoid of the, the, the reality that there are serious things around us, that there's life and responsibilities. We recognize that. But we have the privilege of having a mind that's not crippled and frozen in fear and worry and dread. And so much in the world, don't we see people that are living in fear and worry and dread? But as believers, we have a hope that we can hold on to. We have a hope that gives us joy, that gives us peace. You see, this hope we have should translate into joy. Look back at verse 6. It says, So be truly glad there is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. See, Peter suggests what I would feel is really a dichotomy. Do you know what a dichotomy is? Two kind of conflicting statements. Um, He says that somehow suffering and joy can be experienced at the same time. And that doesn't add up in my head. When I'm suffering, I don't usually think, this is kind of joyful. Right? And when you're feeling really joyful, you don't feel like, you know, suffering. That too. Not bad. They, 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 they seem like they just don't go together. Yet Peter suggests that this joy and the suffering can somehow be experienced simultaneously. And the way this can be done, there's a necessary ingredient. And that ingredient is hope. The hope that God won't waste our suffering. Does it ever feel like suffering is just unknown for why? But yet God won't waste it. In Romans chapter 5 verse 3, it says, Not only so, but we also glory in suffering. We glory in suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character what? Hope. Hope. Say it again. Hope. It produces hope. So, in this suffering... 
in this difficulty, we can experience joy because that joy then we, we recognize that there is a process going on in us that, that will produce a perseverance and character and ultimately hope. And so it's kind of a cyclical pattern that, that kind of builds on itself. In James 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith, I'm sorry, I'm having a microphone issue, produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, God is present in our suffering. Trials force us to move beyond just a superficial knowledge of God into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God. I think of dating relationships. You know you are really getting a depth of relationship when you walk through deep waters together. When you experience something that shakes you to your foundations and you are steeled through it together. It's different than those first three dates to Chipotle with someone where you just are laughing at everybody's jokes even when they're not funny and stuff like that. But when suddenly you go through something that's meaningful, the relationship is, is, is uh, tempered and, and strengthened through that fire. In the same way with our relationship with God, sometimes we just like that relationship when things are easy and fun and we worship and we sing and we do all kinds of things, but when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we fear no evil because he is with us, the relationship becomes all the more real. Peter again refers to this hope in verse 21. He says, through Christ you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and your hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. See, there's an ultimate salvation that is found in Jesus. Hope is found in something bigger than ourselves. How many of you are glad that you are not your end all? That your knowledge, that your strength, your ability is not the end all? I am super glad that it doesn't end with me. That is a really nice feeling to know that, that, that my means are not all there is. I don't know if you've ever been at a job where you're able to pass the buck to the boss and it feels really good to say, you know what, I don't know, let me ask my boss or let me, talk to you, let me have you talk to the boss to be able to say it's not my problem right now, I'm going to just pass that on. Can I tell you that it's really nice when we recognize that the, all the issues going on in the world, the, the worries that we have, it doesn't end with us and ultimately our hope is placed on the one who is so much bigger than us. That our hope is on one that is so much stronger than us. It's placed in the one who has resurrection power. It's in the one who has no beginning and the one who has no end. The one is not dependent on anyone for his existence. The one who needs no approval for, for no man, for no person on his deity. God doesn't wring his hands when he says, Oh, there's atheists out there that don't even think I exist. It doesn't even matter to God. That's the one in whom we believe. The one who is bigger than all things that our, that our minds can conceive, that our philosophies could, could write out. He he is so much bigger and stronger and mightier than anything we could wrap our minds around. How big is our God? How big is our God? I was was reminded of that the other day. Our family likes to just go on little road trips around and drive around the area. And I I saw an area where uh, a mudslide had happened. And there was a substantial fence that had been built. And it had uprooted a single tree. And the single tree went over and its root system picked up that fence system like it was a toy. And just right off, right off the ground. It had to be about 60 feet of fence just ripped up. And I thought, how long did someone work on that fence? And in just one moment, it's gone. <laughs> and a movement of nature. Think about how big our God is. We put all our effort into building all this technology and all this stuff around ourselves. But how big is our God? 
First Peter, continuing on in verse 14, he says, So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God, who chose you, is holy. Do we have the verse up there? Can we get that verse up there? Thank you so much. Okay, so don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. Let's go to the next one. But you now must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. You see, we stand apart in holiness. Holiness is something that is really misunderstood. It's misunderstood by Christians, and it's misunderstood by the world. Um... To put to the average person, holiness means to assume a very pious attitude, right? When someone is like, oh, look at Mr. Holier Than Thou. Um, it, it means, it, it can be kind of seen as a superficial thing. It's moral superiority over another person. But holiness, by definition, means to be set apart. It's separate. So Peter's talking to the churches about how to live differently in an increasingly hostile world. And how some, how, how... How accurate is that today? Living as Christians in an increasingly hostile world. By human nature, we don't want to stand out as holy. By human nature, we, we want to be on the inside. We don't want to be the outsiders. We want to be on the inside. And, and you may differ. You may say, Brent, no, that's not me. I am the black sheep. I am, I am the rebel. I march to a beat of my own drum. Sorry, buckaroo. That's not me. I, I kind of differ on that. There's, a, there's several experiments that have been done, and I dropped this as an illustration, but then I brought it back. I, I wish I had the, the, uh, the, the data in front of me, but it's very interesting where in the 1950s, a, psych, a psychologist took a group of people and did a, did a test. It's a very simple, easy test. He would show three lines of different lengths, and then he would show them a fourth line and say, this fourth line, which one is that exact same length? And it was an incredibly easy test. This is preschool level test. Like, I think uh, the, the, the control group got 90, over 99% of them right. They're like, that line is that line. That line is the same length as that one. Very easy. But then he took seven more people and added them to the group that were actors. And those actors would intentionally guess wrong in front of the person that didn't realize it. They'd intentionally guess the wrong line length. They'd be like, that one's clearly that one. And the line's like that much longer. You know, it's ridiculous. But 75% of the time, people would go along with the group to say, yep, that's the right length matching line. And it was not even close. Not even, not even close to the same length. And, and, and it's an interesting examination of, of, our, of our tendency to want to blend in, to not look odd, to not stand out. Has anybody remember the TV show? Maybe it's still on, but Candid Camera. Do you guys remember that? It, it, smile. You're on Candid Camera. Wow, you guys sing good. That was good. Um, so so it, that show goes all the way back to like the 1950s and before. It actually used to be uh, Candid candid microphone they would record people on microphone which is really creepy then they'd play it on the radio but uh but uh but they they turned it into a camera tv show and they did an experiment or one of these candid cameras with an elevator and everybody on the elevator facing the wrong way except for one person um take take a look i actually give you have a clip here for you the gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, a man with a white shirt, a lady with a trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff, will face the rear. And you'll see 
I like to think that we are unique and individuals, but it's so much easier to blend in. So when the Bible calls us to holiness, that fun sound of being unique isn't necessarily coming as easily. When you increasingly find yourself in the minority, standing against... But the Bible says there is to be a distinctiveness to our lives, that we're to stand apart, that we're to separate ourselves. Um, Romans 12, 2 says, Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we are called to not just match the patterns that we see around us, and this standing apart is actually quite difficult. Do you know why that is? Because it's easiest to, to, go, to go along with what, what everybody else is doing. But when, when we associate our holiness with our own striving to be perfect, I think we often find ourselves frustrated. Um, we'll often become very discouraged because, because we're, we're, we're making our own personal efforts at being good, at being perfect, at do, being right. It's like setting up those, those unrealistic uh, New Year's resolutions and we fail and then we don't feel like picking them up again because we've already messed up. And so often we do that with ourselves. And so when we set these standards for ourselves, for holiness, we leave ourselves falling so far short. But the truth is this. Holiness starts with the understanding of this fundamental truth. The only perfection within us is Jesus. Did you see what it says in verse 15? I don't know if we can look back at verse 15, Lizzie. But it says this. You must be holy in everything you do. It doesn't say you must become holy in everything you do. We must be holy. It's something Jesus does in us. We can't become it on our own, but rather it's, it's Jesus working within us. Look at what God says in the book of Leviticus chapter 20. He says, keep all my decrees by putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. See, holiness is an inward work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is outwardly expressed then in our living. It's not something that we do on the outside. The outward expression isn't what makes us holy. It's the evidence. It's the evidence and an indicator of the inward work that Jesus is doing within us. And so, and so holiness is that spiritual life, or holiness is to spiritual life as what uh, health is to physical life. If I were to go... 
and put the right foods in my body, eat healthy on occasion, and, and uh, exercise, that would then manifest, manifest itself in how I look and how I feel and how I act. In the same way, with our holiness, what, what Jesus does on the inside of us, what the Holy Spirit works in us, then manifests itself into our holiness that's exemplified in the outside. But so often we work on just what we can do on the outside. Look on, work, on, work on our actions, work on how we speak, do all these things which are important, but rather than letting Jesus work on the inside and change us from the inside out. See, is there any area in your life where you've been striving for perfection? And I'm not talking about in the godly sense of trying to be more like Jesus, but in an unhealthy way, in a perfectionism type sense, almost in a sense of working out your own salvation. Perhaps there's a comparison monster that's been living inside you. Looking at other people and measuring yourself and how easy is that in our day and age of social media, being able to see other people's lives or what they profess as their lives with the number of selfies we can take and the filters and all the things to make our lives look so good and we measure and we try to adjust ourselves, but we attach our value and our worth and all these things to these things, but really, what's driving that? Is it a desire to be more like Jesus or is it a desire to somehow self-improve and to be able to earn something that we can control? The last thing Peter calls us to is to stand together in love. To be prepared, to be girded and ready to go, to stand together in love. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he continues on. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all of your heart. Now this is interesting because Peter actually uses two different words here. We just have the word love and the word love. We use it the same, I, I, which is problematic because I can say I love tacos and I can say I love my wife in the same breath. And I hope that means two very different things, two different levels, right? Um, but but, but we, we use the word love so interchangeably in all kinds of things. But, but the truth is love in, in, in the Greek had multiple definitions and so there were different words that gave it so much more depth. And Peter uses two different words here. The first word he opens with here is love filet, which, which is where we get phileo, which is for, what eventually leads to Philadelphia, like the city of brotherly love. This is a love of affection. It's a love of fondness. It's actually liking each other. And so Peter says, he says, you must show sincere love to each other. He, needs, he says, you need to show sincere affection for one another. Genuinely love one another. Mean it. Like, like each other. Don't just, don't just grit your teeth and say, the Bible says I have to love you, so I'll love you. But you drive me crazy, and so I'll just love you, and we'll have to share the same air we're breathing until one of us goes home to be with the Lord. I pray with you, one of us more than the other. Dealing with one another and, and things like that. But God, but, but it's not saying that. It's, it's, it's saying that we need to genuinely have a deep affection for one another and mean it. Not just that surface level. Not just that, mm, I'm going to smile and make you feel like I'm being nice. But to genuinely, truly care. I'm, I'm really intimidated going to Dutch Brothers. That's a, it's a, they've got good coffee and everything, but there's a couple reasons I'm intimidated going to Dutch Brothers. First of all, um, I don't know much about coffee, and so I, I'm, I just, they're very, they're very right, right there and imminent in your face, you know, when you're there, and uh, I feel like I have to have things ready. But the other thing is, they're incredibly friendly people. 
Some, and I'm a friendly person, but sometimes they're more friendly than I am. Uh, do you know what I mean? They want to know how your day is really bad. And, and they're, they're like, hey, how's your day going, bro? Right on, dude. Oh, you have a good day. I feel like doing like a, a parody video where they like climb out of their window into your car and be like, oh, I hope you're doing really good. Are we going anywhere? What's going on? You know, they're just really, really in your face. They're very friendly. But the truth is, I think part of it is it feels a little bit insincere to me sometimes. I'm not saying all of them are, but I feel, I feel like sometimes they want to know about your day and what you're doing with your day and all that, but when you drive away, do they really care? Like, do, do they turn to the person next to them and go, did you hear that? He's getting a hose for his washing machine at the hardware store. I hope this goes well. I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> whew. Sounds like, sounds like they got a lot happening. I don't feel like it's, you know, really that sincere while, while it's really nice that they ask how your day is. In the same way, believers... What level, what depth is our love for one another? Is it a true, deep affection that says, I care deeply about you. I actually care about the condition of your soul. I care about what's going on with your family, with what's going on in your life, with your health, all these things. You are my brother. You are my sister. And then Peter says there's another word love that he goes into. Can we go back to that? Lizzie, you're doing such an awesome job. Thank you. If we go back to that verse, then he says, then love each other deeply with all your heart. And this love he uses there is the word agape. He says agape one another. And agape is the ultimate greatest form of love. Agape love is sacrificial love, self-sacrificial love. It's costly love. This is the love that Jesus poured out when he died on the cross for us. This is love that says, I'm going to put my life down in front of yours. And Peter then calls us then to blend these two loves in this verse. He says, we need to saturate our love with this human fondness and this affection that we have. And then bring it together with this love that's self-sacrificial and costly. That actually costs us time, costs us money, costs us convenience. Take those, bring them together. And when they come together, it's going to be a transformative love. A heavenly thing, a something that can be, that can literally bring heaven to earth. And as Christians, we are living as exiles on this earth. We are living as, as people that don't belong here. But he says this love should hold us together. There's a unity. You've heard the saying, birds of a feather flock together, right? There should be something within our brothers and sisters in Christ. This species has an attachment for itself. These birds, based on the similarity of character in the same way, shouldn't we be the same with followers of Jesus? We see that reflection of Christ in their life and say, I love you. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm attracted to the same thing. We are moving towards the same goal. There is a unity. We recognize that this world is not our home and we're moving towards where we ultimately will be. That's the reason why several times in this first chapter of First Peter, Peter talks about being alien. He's not literally just meaning that you're not supposed to be living there in modern day Turkey. He's saying, ultimately, our home is heaven. And let's not try to make this as much home as we can when we recognize that we are aliens here and one day we will be home where we belong. In verse 23, Peter says, For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. See, the truth is, one day we will step into the other side of eternity. And reality will become so much more real. 
things will become so much more real when we step into eternity. I don't know if you've ever been with someone in the room. It's a very... It's a very profound moment when you're with someone in the room when they step through that veil into eternity. That veil is so thin. You can feel the weight of eternity when someone walks into the presence of Jesus. We're kind of shielded from it in our world. We don't see death, but to be with someone as they walk into eternity is a profound moment. And this last week, we celebrated home one of our saints, Paula Lee. She folded up in December, folded up her earthly tent and stepped into where she belongs, into the presence of Jesus, into eternity. And I think about what that moment would be like. I feel like the air would feel so much more real. I I like to travel. I enjoy, um, I've, I've had the privilege of being to several continents, many countries. And something I always notice is when they open the, pl- the plane door and you step onto the jetway, you suddenly breathe air that's not familiar. It's different. No matter where you go, the humidity is different, the elevation is different. The, uh, uh, sometimes, depending on where you go, they dispose of their garbage different. They have to burn it in some places. They have, there, there's just, it's different. You smell the air and you feel like, I'm somewhere different. This isn't home. And then when you get back home and that jetway opens again and you step back in to where your home is and you breathe the air, you go, this is home. This is where I belong. Someday we'll step through that veil that's so thin into eternity and we'll recognize we are face to face with Jesus and we're home where we belong. One of my favorite bands named Switchfoot has a lyric and they say, they have a lyric that says, I'm not sentimental but this skin and bones, it's just a rental. And someday we'll step into that. But Peter is writing to the saints, reminding them, of, um, of, reminding them of that, but then also reminding them of something bigger, saying, or something, something that we need to hold on to until that time. He says there's three things we need to remember. We need to hold on tightly. Be prepared for action in hope. Don't let this escape your mind. Have your mind prepared in action for hope. When the world feels like it's falling apart, when everything feels like it's falling apart, remember, all of your hope has been placed on the salvation that is ours in Jesus. And the second thing he says is no matter what remember to stand separate in holiness don't get pulled aside to what the world would want to distract you with all the things that are going on be different be distinct stand different in what the holy spirit is doing inside your heart and then finally stand together unified in love love each other deeply purely with passionate love that says i have got your back you have got my back we love each other and we sacrifice for one another and that's what peter is calling us to church today So before we close, I want to give this opportunity. If we can take a moment and bow our heads and close our eyes. If you have not experienced this hope that I'm talking about, this hope that when the world feels like it's losing its grip, when the things we feel like we should be able to depend on are like sand in our hands, and it ebbs away and you want a hope that truly lasts and this morning as Peter said we need to put our full hope all of our hope into Jesus and you want to do that today you need to give your heart to Jesus maybe you're watching online maybe you're in this room if you've never given your heart to Jesus or maybe you need to recommit your life to him today 
I want to give you that opportunity. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're ready for that hope, that joy, and all that comes with it, you're ready to commit your life to Jesus today, I want you to raise your hand and raise it high. Can I see your hands? Yeah, thank you. Any others? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Right now, I want to pray with you, church, together. Let's pray this prayer together out loud. And this is a prayer from our hearts. It's not magic words, but it's rather a commitment of our souls. Church, say, dear Jesus, thank you for coming after me. I didn't find you, you found me. I was a sinner. I've been lost. But you came for me. You died for me. You took my sin. And today I choose to follow you. I make you my Savior and I make you my Lord. From this day forward, I commit to follow you every day of my life. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it from your heart, He is our hope. Heaven is celebrating right now. But now begins the journey of following Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't say that we were to go and make converts. He said we're to go and make disciples and disciples follow Jesus. And so now the journey begins. And so I encourage you, if you raised your hand, would you please come talk to me after the service? I want to give you tools for the next steps in your journey following Jesus. If you did this, if you're watching online and you decided to follow Jesus, would you please on that online connection card, you'll see a link there. Let us know you decided to follow Jesus and we want to get those tools in your hands for your journey following Jesus. And right now, I want to pray over you, church. Can we stand together as we dismiss? Lord, I pray for your church. Church, let's raise our hands together. I'm going to pray over you. Lord, I pray that we would be unified in love. That as the body of Christ, the unified body of Christ, we would look for one another, look out for one another, sacrifice for one another, make allowances for one another, where we feel even when we feel wronged, that we would say, I am going to agape love, I'm going to sacrificially love this individual. And that there would be an affection that comes through this too, that we would deeply, affectionately care for one another. That it would be real and genuine, that it would be tested and true. I pray that we would be a unique body of Christ as we go out into our world today. Lord, for each person in this room that's raising their hands, that we would be salt and light, standing out, unique and different. That the fear of standing, uh, standing out in the crowd would not suffocate what the gospel would do, but rather these embers would grow, gr- glow brightly in our world and they would start fires in our world around us. That the hope of Jesus would be ignited everywhere we go, that our footprints would leave those indications of you. We thank you, Jesus. Be with us this week, I pray. That we would keep eternity in mind each and every moment of our lives. We would be prepared and girded up, ready to go in action. In your name, amen. Amen. God bless you, New Life Church. Have a wonderful, blessed week.